Hey, you guys, I hope that you are excited for this week's episode. I just wanted to get on the mic and give an additional trigger warning to this episode. This episode is very hard to digest. It talks about domestic violence. Um, It talks about mental health. It also talks about the death of minors, um, as well as the birth of a minor. So make sure that you have your headphones in, your listening caps on, and you brace yourself. It's a great story, but a hard one to get through. What's going on, everybody? I'm Mara. And I'm Tess. And welcome back to Sisters Who Kill. What would you do to keep your man? What would you do if your man told you to shoot for the moon, but you didn't quite make it, so you decided that you were going to land on a star? If you're listening to this, you probably already know what I'm about to say, that today is the day for you to start your podcast. You have everything that you need, your computer, a little microphone, and Spotify for podcasters. It is the all-in-one platform where you can host, edit, and record your podcast and distribute it everywhere. Where you're listening right now, you can have your podcast there. I promise, for real. And it's free. And you can make some money off of your podcast for free. Free money. Free money is out there. Just go get it by starting your podcast today. Our players this week are Deborah Evans, victim, Samantha Evans, victim, and Deborah's daughter, Joshua Evans, victim, and Deborah's son, Elijah Evans, victim, and Deborah's son, Jordan Evans, victim, and Deborah's son, Laverne Ward, one of Deborah's baby daddies, Joshua and Elijah's daddy and accomplice to the crime. Patrice Scott, Jacqueline's friend. Dwight Pruitt, Patrice's man. Fidel Caffey, Jacqueline's man and accomplice. And Jacqueline Williams, our murderess. Jacqueline Annette Williams went by Annette most of the time, and she was born on December 22nd, 1966. She was raised in a close-knit family in Wheaton, Illinois. Her parents left the rough Chicago streets in the 1960s because they wanted to raise their family in a safe environment. Her mother's name was Martha Martin, and her mom said that Jacqueline had a pretty normal childhood. She had a great relationship with both of her parents. She was a daddy's girl, and she was very close with her sister, Tina. She also attended church very regularly with her family. Now, once Jacqueline Annette started getting to high school, getting into those teenage years, she started to change. She was out with these boys. She was acting like she was grown. And of course, her mama didn't like any of that. And by the time that Jacqueline was 17 years old, she had dropped out of high school and she was pregnant by her first boyfriend. Some time had passed. And by the time she was 20 years old, she was married and had three kids. Three kids by 20. But according to her sister, Jacqueline Nett's sister, This husband, as well as all the boyfriends pretty much that Jacqueline has ever had, used to beat her all the time. Now, all this time, Jacqueline had started to see some trouble with the law. In 1988, she got court supervision before theft by deception 
at a retail store. What is theft by deception other than regular theft? Is it like the self-checkout line? I think that's when you scan up a different item. Oh, I know nothing about that. (laughs) According to police officers, in January of 1990, Jacqueline made a complaint to the police about her boyfriend, about being beat all the time and that she had ended the relationship. And the boyfriend had come into the apartment, punched her in the face, choked her. And the boyfriend had a niece that threatened Jacqueline with a 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol. Between 91 and 93, the police had responded to about four calls. With these incidents between 91 and 93, the boyfriend was charged with battery, aggravated assault, domestic battery. There were other charges, including like choking Jacqueline, threatening her with a loaded gun, hitting her in the head with a wrench and dragging her by the hair. Now, in 1991, Jacqueline Annette had got arrested for credit card fraud. Also in 91 possession of a checks that had been stolen during a series of burglaries in the area. So she was out here trying to get her bag in the most scammy way she knew how. In 93, Jacqueline and another woman, they were arrested for cashing and attempting to cash forged checks at a local bank. Now, these checks had been stolen from an attorney's office, and it was the attorney's office that Jacqueline's mother cleaned. So Jacqueline and your mama was stealing the checks or you were helping your mama mama clean and sell the check? You know what I'm saying? One of y'all was doing it. According to them, when they got arrested and they were questioned, they were like, oh, well, we were trying to get the money because my man needs the money and he asked me to do it. So I was doing it for him, not scamming for other people, but that's going to be the name of the game for this story. Just letting y'all know. Now, for this crime, Jacqueline was sentenced to 24 months of probation for felony theft. Jacqueline was sentenced to additional terms of probation for violating the terms of her original probation. So she was on probation, basically. The girl was doing her thing. Now, by the time she was 27 and 93, so right after she racked up these charges and and put on probation, she met a young guy. She was about 27 at the time, and she met 20-year-old, fresh out of high school, Fidel Caffey. It's so funny because everybody says that he was 20 years old and fresh out of high school and most of the story backs up the fact that he was 20 years old and fresh out of high school. I'm just saying, I'm just saying all the source material say he was 20 and fresh out of high school and all the stories that we found back up the fact that he was fresh out of high school. Maybe, maybe a year removed from high school and they started their um, relations. Fidel was born January 16th, 1973. He was raised by his maternal grandmother, Winfred, and his maternal grandfather, James Caffey. He was very close to his grandfather. I think the relationship was hard with his grandmother and even his mother. His mother was also around. His mom's name is Elaine. But both his mother and grandmother suffered from schizophrenia. So he grew up to some off-the-wall shit. Like, you know, some days are good days, but other days he's watching these women smear shit on the walls or talk about conspiracies that are happening. Just, like, him trying to manage them. You know how it is, like, as a child and you have, like, a parent or a guardian with a a, a chronic mental illness and it's kind of almost like you're caring for them instead of and it's kind of that's kind of scary because with schizophrenia like some days they're great and it's your mom and granny you know Uh and other days when it's bad it's 
awful. Right. And it seemed They're like talking they, about what voices are going on, and he knows there's right. voices, and it's just. And it seemed like from the source material that yes, they were diagnosed, and everybody was aware that they had schizophrenia, but they were not properly treat their schizophrenia. Yeah, they'd, they'd go through hospitalizations and they'd been through several institutions, but then they're back home and, you know, yeah, off the medicine. Or on the street medicine. Right. His mom took LSD before and after she gave birth to him. And so his kind of, his best stable relationship, like I said, was with his grandfather, James. This was his role model. And in 1991, James died of cancer in the home while Fidel was there. Mm-hmm. Now, while Fidel was in high school, he started a relationship with a woman named Latrina Montgomery, and they ended up having a baby named Vanessa. This was not a big adjustment to Fidel because his uncle David, his mom's brother, also lived in a house with his kids. And Fidel was definitely like a really good uncle to these kids. He loved, that's not the uncle, is it? That's his, he was a really good well, cousin the to these to- kids. Yeah, I guess your first cousin. Somebody, I'm very close to my first cousin's son. And somebody was like, it's like you're his aunt. And I was like, no, it's like I'm his cousin. Yeah, but, I guess but like, like an older the relationship cousin. between. I have I right. have older cousins and it's just like, you're definitely not my aunt. You're an adult and I should listen to you, but you're definitely right. still my cousin. After having his daughter, Vanessa, and upon leaving high school, Fidel got a job at UPS. He was like, listen, this money ain't moving like I wanted to. So he quit his job at UPS and started selling drugs. And I feel like this is kind of the beginning of Fidel's real trouble. It's like right here, right out of high school. He just... I mean, UPS is a really good job to have right out of high school, you know? For yeah. like no formal higher education, UPS is a good job. I know a nigga that um, he went to high school with us. His UPS route is by my office. I see him all the time. UPS is a good job. I think this is, you know, when you're young like that, like that money's coming too slow. Like, you know, you get your first job and you be like, wait a second, they're taking how much out of this check? So he wasn't fucking with it. He's like, I'm going to the streets. March of 1991, a state trooper stops him for speeding. And during a pat down, they realized he had a box of ammunition on him and he was arrested for unlawful possession of ammunition and traffic offenses. He was still young. He received court supervision. I was like, we're going to give you a chance, you know. In July of the same year, he was stopped again for speeding. He had two passengers in the car. They searched the car again, and under the left side of the passenger seat is a loaded pistol with two freshly discharged cartridges. Um, in February of 1992, a woman named Nakia Weaver, who he knew, who was an old girlfriend of Fidel from high school. He's like a fresh 19 at this time. She says that he got into a fight in school one day, and after school, he pulls up on his girlfriend in the car and was like, I got in a fight in school today and it was all because of you. He ends up slapping the kid in the face and when she tries to defend herself, he punches her in the face, gets back in the car and drives off. I guess that timeline is right. If you're 19 getting into fights at school, I guess you did graduate at 20. <laughs> like, so he has other reports of him getting into fights in the classroom and stuff. Nikita tried to report this attack to the police and he was charged with battery, but she got scared and didn't appear to court. So nothing really came of it. But like he's he's starting this kind of like cycle we have of weapons charges, we have drug charges and we have assault charges, uh, domestic violence, like kind of building up against you. Right. Later, as an adult, I guess Fidel was on this search for his father. His father has never been a part of his life. You know, he's just lost James and he's probably just like looking for some type of closure, some type of completion. And he goes to the guy that people in the family are saying is his daddy. 
And he goes to the guy, he's like, listen, people are telling me that you my daddy. And the guy says, no, you listen, your mama was a whore. And she was letting me and a whole bunch of other niggas run train on her so anybody could be your daddy. And quite frankly, I ain't going to take that responsibility on. So, oh, my gosh. Imagine hearing that. Right. See, something like that. Nope. I ain't got no daddy. <laughs> and <laughs> that, it, I... Listen, and I, if you're going to act like that, it can stay that way. <laughs> right. And I have, I never did the whole, like, TMI, y'all in my business, but I've never did, the, like, who's my daddy type of thing. I don't care. It's just not my thing. But, oh, my gosh, that would kill me. Like... That would kill anybody. That would kill anybody. So I would have been a heartless ass nigga after that, but I wouldn't be beating bitches. <laughs> Listen. I'd be in therapy. Nah, you'd probably be in these streets. The way he was running these streets, he wasn't going to no damn therapy. No, he wasn't. But if he was in high school up until 20, then why was he not in therapy at school? I would like to know. <laughs> I would like to know. Officially confirmed that he was in high school until 20. <laughs> That's fine. Clearly he wasn't. Why was somebody at the school... Like, hey, this kid that keeps getting into fights and he is 19 years old, about to turn 20 before he graduates, is still here. <laughs> anybody want to have a conversation? The adults weren't like, anybody want to have a conversation about that before he starts beating women and the rest of the story that you're about to hear? So his problems don't stop there. In September of 1994, he was standing in the middle of a residential street and fired multiple rounds of an 83 handgun. It was about noon. There were children playing outside, people walking on the street, and one bullet ends up shattering an automobile. And Fidel was arrested and convicted of criminal damage to property and unlawful use of a weapon and got one year of conditional discharge and 10 days of community service. In December of the following year, police find him and another man parked in a car, and he was sitting in the passenger seat. There was a consensual search of the car, and they found a loaded handgun under his seat and, again, was charged with unlawful use of a weapon, which was ultimately dismissed in court. In January the following year, January 1995, he gets into an altercation with the man, Gregory Flowers. He hits him in the head with a beer bottle and accuses him of stealing parts from his car. From this beer bottle, Gregory gets a three-inch laceration. But he does not charge a criminal complaint, so nothing happened to Fidel after this. He just has this pattern, again, fighting niggas, carrying guns. So what the fuck you want to do, right? So in the spring of 1994, Fidel meets Jacqueline Williams, and they begin dating. Now, Jacqueline's got some age on him. She was 27, he's 21, and she had already had three kids at this point, as we know. Shortly after Fidel and Jacqueline start dating, Jacqueline learns that he's got a one-year-old baby by his former girlfriend, Latrina. And Fidel is continuing his sexual relationship with Latrina and other women at that while he's living in Jacqueline's home. This, of course, made Jacqueline jealous of the relationship between Fidel and Latrina. And this would lead to physical altercations, verbal altercations, and... This was consistent from 1994 to 95. Jacqueline ended up making two complaints of domestic violence against Fidel in 1994. She told the police that he had thrown bricks at her car while she was 
riding in it, had pushed her and struck her in the face. And because of these allegations, he was charged with criminal damage, property, and domestic battery. They were very violent towards each other. They used to cut up each other's dashboards, cut up each other's tires, break windows in each other's cars. It was fight, 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 toxic, toxic, toxic. In January of 1995, Jacqueline has a friend accompanying her to go visit Fidel in the hospital. And her friend's like, hey, girl, what happened to your man? Why is he in here? And she's like, oh, I accidentally stabbed him. Fidel is sitting up here in a hospital with a punctured lung. And it's like, it's not one way or the other because a few months prior to this, this friend had seen Jacqueline severely beaten by Fidel. Just this was their relationship. Now, one thing about Fidel is he loved kids and so badly he wanted a boy a boy to name after himself and yes Jacqueline had kids and maybe she had a son but they didn't look like him Fidel's Hispanic a back Hispanic but he's light-skinned and Jacqueline's kids are not giving they could possibly be Fidel's kids and he was like how we gonna look like a family and none of these kids look like me so hearing Fidel you know talk about how much he wanted a boy it gives Jacqueline the bright idea that she needs to give him a son so she's talking to her sister Tina and she says I know if I can just get a baby by Fidel and it's a boy I can keep him like he wants a light-skinned baby a baby that can be his and I need to keep my man, so I'm going to have to give my baby. But here's the thing. Back in 1986, after having her third child, Jacqueline had her tubes tied at 20 years old. She's 27 now, so getting a baby boyfriend for Dale is not as easy of a task as it might have once been. Instacart helps you get beer and wine delivered in as fast as an hour. So whether you need to fill the cooler for tailgate season or fill your glass for Pinot by the fire season, you can save time by getting false sips delivered in just a few clicks. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Must be 21 or over for alcohol delivery where available. Instacart. Add life to cart. But in February of 1995, Jacqueline tells Fidel she's pregnant. So in June of 1995, Fidel, Jacqueline, and her children moved to a townhouse in Scomberg. In April of 1995, Jacqueline does her formal announcement to the rest of her friends and families that she is expecting. Now, nobody knew that she had her tubes tied at all. Everybody was very excited for her. One of the people that was really excited for Jacqueline was a woman named Debbie. Now, Debbie and Jacqueline were friends because Debbie dated Jacqueline's cousin, Laverne. One of Jacqueline's cousin's woman, and her name was Deborah Evans. Deborah Evans, Debbie, was born on May 6, 1967 to Jacqueline Arnold and Sam Evans in rural Illinois. Same birthday. Hello. Debbie Evans was described as an upbeat and sunny, fun-loving person. I mean, she was one of those people that you just wanted to be around when you were having a bad day. If things were down, Debbie was your girl. When she became a teenager, she also had a rebellious streak and her parents had really strict rules. Now, Debbie, she is white. She a white woman with white mm-hmm. parents. Just... So everybody knows. But I mean, she was one of those people that was a go-getter. Now, when she was 18 years old, she gave birth to her first daughter, Samantha Jean Evans, in 1985. And in 1988, she gave birth to Joshua Ryan, her son. Two different baby daddies, but that's not the story here. In the late 80s, her and her children were living in a pretty sketchy apartment complex. They were in like Chicago, but people described it as being very, very bad, like 
damn near living in squalor. And they didn't have anything to lock the doors with. They didn't have beds. They were just making it through. And her former high school boyfriend, you know, he came over, he would like see her, be like, okay, we're not together, but let me just like make sure that you have locks on your door, make sure that you're protecting yourself and the children because, you know, you're a mother. Like, you don't have the kids with you and you're going to figure it out regardless, right? Right. Now, this former high school boyfriend apparently was not Joshua's father, but because she was scared of Joshua's father, she allowed him to put his name down on Joshua's birth certificate. All these things are happening, and she starts dating a guy named James after a while. James had been living with Deborah since 1989, so we're in the late 80s now. And between 89 and 1995, James and Deborah, you know, they were on and off. They were having situationships. And during one of their quote-unquote breaks. In 1994, she started dating a man named Laverne Ward. And Laverne Ward got her pregnant, and she had her son, Jordan. Now, Laverne Ward is also Jacqueline Annette Williams' cousin. So Laverne Ward was born September 21st, 1971, and he's originally from Alabama, but he actually moved up to Illinois because he was you know, with his girlfriend. So he moved up to Illinois in about 1990. The two had a child together, so he had a baby mama. And he had plenty of charges. Most of them were for harassing his ex-girlfriend, domestic violence. And in 1992, he violated a protective order. He pushed a police officer. He was arrested. He went to jail. And he was released in 1993, three years later. Laverne, he was described as a very quiet guy, um, as a very scary guy. I mean, he's he from Mississippi, and they just have one of those faces that you just don't want to fuck with. And when he started dating Debbie, he was known to be, like, very controlling, very violent. Debbie's my woman. I don't want... Very possessive. I don't want nobody looking at you, doing nothing with you. They gave birth to their son, Jordan, and things were getting weird. So she was like, listen, you can't come around here no more. We need to cut this off, and you can't see your son. Like, I heard that she got a court order to make that so. Like, you can't see him. Since he was legally not allowed to see his son... Things were kind of weird between them. But, you know, Deborah and him had their on again, off again. You know how that shit go. A court order don't mean nothing when you got love <laughs> in a toxic relationship. And, you know, he smooth talked his way back in the house. And after he smooth talked his way back in the house, she kicked him out after three days. But between that three days, he got her pregnant again. Some time passes and Debbie and James Edwards, her on again, off again boyfriend, they're back on and things are going well and they're living together and he works right across the street at the wherever he works. And so things are great. Things are perfect. Things are awesome, except for the fact that Laverne is not letting up. He's harassing her. He's threatening her. She ends up putting a restraining order out on him. And remember, she is pregnant, pregnant right now. Like, Pregnant, she ain't got pregnant. Time to be dealing with all this stress, girl. So jumping back into Fidel and Jacqueline's drama, it's May 1995, right? And they got this neighbor named Don Killian. Killian is very well acquainted with Fidel, Jacqueline, and Jacqueline's cousin Laverne. To give you a, a idea of what the relationship between everybody is, like Mariah said. Jacqueline and Vern are cousins, but Fidel and Vern went to high school together. And when Fidel started selling drugs, he, you know, recruited Vern to be his runner. He was like, yeah, you my boy. We can both make some money together. You can be my runner and shit, right? So 
them two sold drugs together. Dawn is close with them because her and Vern were coke addicts and they would do lines together. That was their idea of a good time, you know? Now, one of these days, we're still in May, Dawn goes to the apartment where Jacqueline and Fidel are living and she's like, hey guys, can I borrow a vacuum cleaner? In the apartment at this moment, it's Fidel, Jacqueline, Dawn, and Vicky. Then in walks Vern. He's yelling and screaming, screaming about Deborah not letting him see Jordan, his son. Dawn says that she hears him saying that he's tired of her shit and he wanted it to end and he wanted to solve this problem. And he's, he wants to kill the bitch. All this referring to Debbie. Fidel says, well, Vern, what's up? You need a knife or a gun? How can I help? And Jacqueline. Wrong answer. Right. Jacqueline's like, nah, because you need to calm down, take a deep breath because some shit go down. You the number one suspect. Like, he chills out. Nothing really comes of it at this point. So Jacqueline starts telling people, you know, she's pregnant and that she'll be due in August. But August comes and nothing happens. She changes her due date to October. And then that eventually gets pushed to November. She, in fact, tells her probation officer on November 1st of 1995 that she had just given birth. Vern, you know, he's still mad about this little baby situation. He can't see his son. Deborah's supposedly about to drop his next son. And he's still trying to figure out when he can see Jordan or when at least these child support payments going to let up. Like, it's a lose-lose situation for him, right? So he's calling Deborah, calling Deborah, calling Deborah, harassing her, arguing with her. And James, Deborah's living boyfriend, is overhearing these conversations, you know? It was like, what can you do, you know? <laughs> That's your baby daddy. <laughs> That's what you decided to do on our break, so. Stop. Don't don't torture me like this when I'm already <laughs> down. Don't kick me when I'm down, okay? I know plenty of people that are not happy about their baby daddy, but the least you can do is not kick them when they're down. <laughs> yes, I know he ain't shit. Thank you. So I ain't got no baby daddy. It's hard to pinpoint where this happened, but it seems like even though things were hostile between Debbie and Vern, it seems like she had a friendship or maybe just even a relationship with Annette to the point that we heard one place, can't remember where, but we had heard that at one point in time, Debbie felt like she was helping Annette out and let her live with her for a brief period of time. Maybe Fidel was on his shit and shit was a little bad and Annette needed a little breather and, you know, spent some time over to Debbie's house. Who knew, right? But there's like a relationship between there. her and Jacqueline Annette. Yeah. Right. Annette, changes her pregnancy due date a final time. This is when she pushes it to November. And now her pregnancy aligns with Debbie's. So I know it's a lot going on here, but let's kind of recap for a second. We have Jacqueline and Fidel who want a light-skinned baby, but Jacqueline can't have one because her tubes are tied. Now here's T. Jacqueline has told Fidel she has been pregnant at least twice. One occasion she said she had an abortion. One occasion, she said she had a miscarriage. But we know, but Fidel doesn't know that she got her tubes tied when she was 20. Now, also, we have Vern and Debbie going about it about their sons. And Debbie is, of course, pregnant with Vern's second son by her. But he can't even see his first one. And Vern and Jacqueline being cousins and Debbie being at least an acquaintance. Jacqueline know that they about to have the baby of her dreams and Fidel dreams, a little light-skinned baby because Debbie's white and Vern's black. And 
surprise, surprise, this baby who has already been predetermined to be named Elijah is going to be a boy. So this is perfect. This is what Fidel has already wanted. The second week of November-ish and Annette is over to Debbie's house and she's talking to her boyfriend, James, and she's like, hey, so, uh, What's your work schedule like these days? He's like, oh, you know, I work nights, the graveyard shift. I work at 530 and I get off at like two. And she's like, oh, you know, hang in there, man. Everything going to be all right, right? So it's the afternoon of November 16th, 1995. And there's this man, John Petaway. This is Jacqueline's other cousin. Now, John says that he sees Fidel and Jacqueline and Vern, all three of them together this day, right? He's driving around and he sees John is hanging out with Vern. And I assume like they're still cousins because Jacqueline and Vern are cousins and Jacqueline and John are cousins. And so I think in a way, John and Vern are also cousins. But John and Vern are riding around and they see Fidel. And Vern's like, hold up a second. So Vern gets out the car and he goes to talk to Jacqueline and Fidel in the car that they parked in. They speak for about 10, 15 minutes. Vern goes back to the car with John and they leave. John and Vern then go to John's brother's house. They're chilling for a while, and then Vern's like, hey, I got to go find Fidel. So they leave the house again, and they see Fidel and Jacqueline driving down the street. Fidel and Jacqueline pull over to the side. Vern again gets out the car and speaks to Jacqueline and Fidel for about 20 minutes, gets back in the car, and Fidel and Jacqueline drive away separately. Now, later that afternoon, they try, Vern's like, I got to find Fidel again and John drives again looking for him but they pull up to the school where Jacqueline's kids go and they're like all right we ain't see him and that's the last of John's accounts for where he has seen Vern and Jacqueline and Fidel for the day right basically they was out and about steady and sneaky, you know sneaky quick talking conversations not too long no phone calls so so it's November 16th 1995 and Debbie's boyfriend, James Edward, leaves for work like he's scheduled to at 5.30 p.m. Laverne reached out to Debbie saying that he wanted to see his son. And, you know, Debbie already wasn't about that shit. No, you can't come over here. But he was like, no, I'm going to have Jacqueline and Annette and I'm going to have Fidel with me. So, you know, nothing's going to happen. So Debbie was like, okay, I feel safe. Like, essentially, I want you to be around your kid. Gives him that chance to come over, especially because she's going to be surrounded. Now, when she gets there, apparently, they say, hey, you know, the son that you're about to have, we would love to buy him off of you. How's $2,000? And Debbie was like, excuse me, what? They're like, yeah, we'll buy the child that is in your womb that you're due for any day. You're actually, she was literally like, what was it, four or five days from her induction date? If she Mm -hmm. ain't dropped, she was pregnant, pregnant, Mm y'all. Like, don't want to be bothered, pregnant, pregnant. Already and attached to this baby, pregnant, pregnant. Already has kept right. all the other kids, pregnant, pregnant. And they offer in $2,000? She was like, uh, no. When she refused, Fidel pulls out a gun and shoots Debbie in the head. Debbie falls to the ground. She's not dead yet. She's in shock. She, she's looking back and forth like, oh my goodness, I've just been hit in the head. She's laying motionless on the ground. And Jacqueline Annette gets one of those poultry scissors, you know, the scissors that you cut chicken that's in your knife set that never is actually in the knife set like it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Takes one of those, stabs her in the neck multiple times, and then she cuts Debbie open, giving her a C-section across the abdomen, and takes out baby Elijah. 
Now, they did a very botched job of cutting Elijah's umbilical cord, and they actually thought that they lost the baby. And Fidel looks down, and he's like, man, that baby dead. Leave it here. And Jacqueline Annette is like, no, I still want the baby. Like, I just cut this baby out. Gives baby Elijah CPR and says, look, the baby's alive. Goes and washes him off. Wraps him up in pajamas. And while she, while Jacqueline Annette is doing that, Fidel and Laverne enter 10-year-old Samantha's room. They figure she's old enough to be a witness. She has to go. She's laying in a sleeping bag in her room. And the two stab her to death. Now, while they were stabbing her, she was clearly awake and she was fighting back. She had a lot of defensive wounds, meaning she was putting up a fight. At this time, eight-year-old Joshua is hidden in a closet because he hears all the commotion going on. Now that the baby's wrapped up, they thought, wow, this would be a perfect time to start stealing stuff from the house. They steal things like a CD player, a Grambling, um, like Letterman jacket, shout out to the HBCUs, and they were out the door. Brooks Running has a new shoe for you runners out there. Did you hear that? Better turn up your volume. In fact, turn it up to the max. Introducing the all-new Ghost Max. It's got all kinds of things to make your knees and ankles feel protected, like Max Cushion, Max Soft Landings with DNA Loft V2 Foam, and Max Smooth Rides with their Glide Roll Rocker. Feel better on your run with Ghost Max. Learn more at brooksrunning.com. Now, Remember, we said that Joshua was in the closet. Jordan, he was left alive. They were like, nah, he's going to be too young to be an actual witness. You know, we're going to be good on that. He was two years old. And Jacqueline Annette was the last person to leave the house because she has the baby. When she's getting ready to leave the house, Joshua, who's eight years old and hiding in the closet, of course, Jacqueline Annette is somebody that he trusts. He runs up to her. He's like, oh my gosh, these bad men just came and did this. Like, you have to, I don't want to die. You have to help me. You have to help me. And she's like, Joshua's standing there. He's got a shirt on. He's got, he doesn't have even have pants on. He's at home. And she takes him out of the back door and brings him with her and this new baby in the car with Laverne and Fidel. And they drive off. Now, after this, they dropped Laverne off. Laverne actually went to go hang out with his kids or do something like that. And they were like, okay, well, what are we going to do with this kid? And at first they were like, oh, we'll just take him to the South side, take him to the hood, whatever. And Jacqueline Annette was like, hold on, I know where to take him. So she knocks on the door of her friend, Patrice Scott. Now, Patrice Scott lived in the Villa Apartments. She lived there with her man. Her man's name is Dwight Pruitt. And she had three daughters. Her youngest was like a month and a half old. She had just given birth. They had all known each other and they were cool. They hung out and Patrice opens the door and she sees blood all over Annette's sweater. She sees this little white kid, Joshua. He's looking just disheveled and terrified. Like, what's happening? And Annette's like, okay, listen, girl, his mama did a really bad drug deal and we got to take her to the hospital and I just need somebody to watch this kid for the night. And Patrice is like, okay, sure. Like, sure, we can't let a kid, like, be hurt, lets the kid in the house. And she's like, oh yeah, by the way, congratulations to me. I just gave birth. And Patrice is like, oh, okay. Now remember Joshua, I told you he didn't even have pants on. He had boots with no socks, no pants, a shirt and a coat. When Jacqueline Annette left, Patrice asked Joshua like, okay, what's your name? And do you need to go to the bathroom? What would you like to do? She sets up a little spot for him in the living room and he is just looking 
terrified, just frazzled. Throughout the night, like, he's crying, crying, and whimpering. Now, back at Debbie's house, James Edwards returns home from work. He gets home at around 2.30 a.m., and he walks in, and he sees two-year-old Jordan covered in blood. And he's like, what in the world is this? He walks and sees Debbie laying with a blanket over her. And he can clearly see that she is dead. And she has a huge gash in her stomach. And he's like, what the fuck is this? He goes to look for the rest of the kids. He goes and finds Samantha in her Pocahontas nightgown, in her sleeping bag with her throat slashed. And he is like, what the fuck is this? So he looks around and he tries to find Joshua. Joshua is not there. So he knows that she has been clearly mutilated. One of the kids is missing and this kid is covered in blood. He immediately calls 911. When the police come, they try to take in all the evidence. They're trying to figure out what what is what because clearly this is a gruesome crime scene. And James Edwards is like, yes, I can tell that this has been stolen. There's clearly a pair of poultry shears that have been stolen. There's a jacket. There's that CD player that we told you about. It's clearly been stolen. But weirdly enough, there's also an ace bandage here and nobody here is wrapping up any of their wrists or ankles or kneecaps like that's weird so take that in for evidence of course they're analyzing the scene and one thing that they noticed was that there were no signs of forced entry and James Edwards was of course a number one suspect but he was quickly ruled out because that clock in clock out slip will get you every time and since minors and a potential baby were the subject of a huge kidnapping police responded pretty well about getting the word out there trying to find Joshua now it's the same day jump back to Jacqueline Annette. She's already dropped off Joshua and it's 3.30 in the morning and she calls her sister Tina at 3.30 in the morning. I would be so upset if anybody called me at three o'clock in the morning. So 3.30 a.m. same day, Jacqueline Annette calls her sister and says that she gave birth, that she's a mommy now and things are going great and she's just at her friend's house resting and things are awesome. You're not at the hospital? What? Red flag. At 5.30 in the morning, Joshua was still crying like throughout the entire night and Patrice, she gets up. She's like, okay, like, what's wrong? Do you want to talk? She's trying to comfort Joshua and she's like, everything's going to be okay. You know, you just really need to get some rest. Your mom's going to be okay. They're taking her to the hospital and he's like, no, no, my mom is not going to be okay. Okay, my mom and my sister, they're dead. They're dead. It is not going to be okay. These burglars came in and they cut up my mom. They cut up my sister. And I was so scared. And I asked Miss Annette to take me with her. And here I am because my my mom is dead. He tells her everything. And he's like, she was there. Um, Laverne was there. Um, Fidel was there. Remember, he's what, eight? He is old enough to know these people. And these are people that are frequent, that are frequent flyers at the house. He also said there was somebody named Boo Boo there. That's all I got for you on that one. Because Boo Boo ain't getting nothing else in this story. No charge, no nothing. But there also was a Boo Boo there. And Boo Boo's apparently one of Fidel's brothers, but we don't know that. And he was like, they went into the house. They came through the window. And he's telling her everything that happened. And so this is a little wild. Now her man, Dwight, he is overhearing this from the room. And he's like, oh, shit. He comes out and they start getting the girls prepared for school. And when they do, this is their kid's first time seeing Joshua because he came in so late or so early in the morning. And Joshua is still shaken up. He's still crying. He is not in a good state. And her daughters, they're young. And you know how kids are when they see other sad kids. They're like, oh, what's wrong? Like, let me make you smile. Let me read you a story. They tried to do all these things. But Joshua just 
was so sad and was so shaken up. Finally, they leave Joshua because they're like, okay, you got to actually take the kids to school. And Joshua's like, please make sure that you lock the door behind you so that the bad men don't come back. They come back from dropping the kids off at school and it is around 9 a.m. Jacqueline Annette comes to pick up Joshua. When she comes to pick up Joshua, uh, Patrice is like, hey girl. So um, his, this kid said that his mama did not get shot in a drug deal gone wrong. He said that his mama was stabbed and so was his sister and that you and Fidel and Laverne and that nigga boo-boo were all there. So what's going on with that? And Jacqueline is like, what, kid? Don't you know about lying? Lying is bad. Why would you lie? Da, da, da. Girl, this kid is, this baby is lying. Here, Joshua, I got your medicine. Your mama told me to make sure that you have your medicine. Joshua's like, I don't take no medicine. And she's like, yes, you do. Take your medicine. And Joshua's like, I don't take no medicine. So Jacqueline then forces him to take this medicine. And this medicine is iodine. Joshua throws up. You're trying to poison this baby. And when she realized that iodine wasn't going to actually kill him, she's like, all right, let me let me take this baby with me. Actually, I'm about to go back to the house. Anyways, Patrice, don't you want some clothes? I told you I got some clothes for you. Why don't you just ride with me down to the house? Let's get this little boy. Let's get him all situated since his mom is going to be okay. Lying to this boy's face. And bring a baby. And at first, Patrice is like, she's like, hey, Dwight. Remember Dwight's her man. Hey, Dwight, watch the baby so that I can go pick up these baby clothes with, with Jacqueline Annette and this random kid, Joshua, that is disheveled and clearly scared. And I don't know why, but Dwight said, no, like you take the one and a half month old with you. So she does. And they drive down to Fidel's house. So they get to Jacqueline and Fidel's apartment or townhome or whatever. Jacqueline is like, listen, Fidel, he knows too much and he can't shut the fuck up. We need to take care of him. Fidel said, didn't I tell you to drop this nigga off in the projects? What the fuck you doing bringing him back to our house? And she's like, you know, he, he knows too much. He's sitting here telling her, that we did all this stuff and we kidnapped him and stuff. Like, you know, something we gotta give. Patrice comes in the house with Joshua and she, when she comes in, she sees baby Elijah laying on the bed with some tape on his stomach. He's got this fucked up umbilical cord and it just taped it down. Patrice can overhear Annette telling Fidel that Joshua got a, a big mouth. He knows too much. He knows our name. He said my name. He said your name. He said Vernon's name. Like, she's telling him all of this. So... Fidel and Annette are like, come here, Joshua. Come sit on the bed. They didn't grab a, a like, phone wire or something, and they wrap it around his neck and begin pulling, trying to strangle it. And Patricia's like, stop. Stop. Don't do that. He is a kid. Stop. She pushes Jacqueline off of Joshua, and they both drop the rope. So then Jacqueline goes to the kitchen to grab a knife. Now, you ask Jacqueline's story. Jacqueline says Fidel told her to go get this knife. If you ask Patrice, Patrice says Jacqueline was not instructed to do anything. She just went and did it on her own. So it could come back and she's walking with this knife behind her back. And Patrice is like, y'all got to stop, please. Just take me home. Got to let Joshua go. Just take us back to my apartment. They're like, all right, whatever. Fidel says, check this out, Patrice. You say anything, I'm going to fuck you and your kids up, all right? So you, it's going to be on your best bet to keep your mouth shut, okay? Patrice right, you already scared. see what I'm on. Right. Patrice is scared shitless. She's got her baby Alexis with her. She just wants to get out of here. And so she gets in the car. She's sitting in the front seat. Jacqueline gets in the driver's seat. And she tells Joshua to sit in the back and they wrap him up in a bed sheet. I think they tried to choke him again with like a scarf. But then Fidel ends up just stabbing 
Joshua with a dull knife and slitting his throat while Annette holds him down. And Patrice is like, I can feel him kicking the back of my seat and gurgling and crying for help. And And she's sitting there. She got to hold her baby. Right. So Fidel's like, let's take him to the projects, like I said, in the first place. Right. So they drive down this alleyway and Fidel and Jacqueline help Joshua walk, who is still alive help him walk to the alleyway behind a building, and then they returned without him. Joshua laid out behind this building alone for about 30 minutes until he finally died from bleeding out. Now, Jacqueline drops Patrice back to her apartment around 12 p.m., and she's like, listen, like we said, don't say shit. Streaming October 6th on Paramount+. Plus. First place I learned about death was a pet cemetery. Dead things buried in that land will come back. There's something else. Something's wrong with Timmy. He needs time to adjust. That's not Timmy. Something's talking through him. Sometimes dead is better. Pet Cemetery, Bloodlines, Rated R, streaming only on Paramount Plus. Once Patrice gets home, they're like, we have. Got to call the cops. And Patrice is like, listen, Fidel on some crazy shit and I ain't fucking with it. So she leaves him out of the story when she tells the cops. She's just like, listen, this little boy is hurt. He was at our house. We see that he's missing on the news. And they take the cops to where Joshua's body was dumped. They find him around 3 p.m. and discover that he's been dead for about six hours at this point. You know, it's all over the news Joshua has been found and not alive, and a trust begins being established at the First Chicago Bank to help pay for funeral expenses. Of course, police have more questions for Patrice. You know where Joshua is. Do you know where this other baby is? And Patrice is like, I absolutely do. It's over with Jacqueline at her apartment. So Jacqueline is introducing her new baby, Fidel Jr., to her neighbors and shit. She has called her mama and her sister and it's like look at my baby listen I don't know if you heard this story but she calls her mama her sister and is like hey my baby's being born y'all should come see him they go see that blonde haired baby and they said girl this is not your baby <sighs> Tina said my mama told me to take her home she said we was probably there for five minutes my mama went hand it <laughs> so because gonna- how you look like that that baby is blonde she's like listen we're not buying it. I don't know what the fuck going on, but it ain't right, and I'm leaving. So, he's not blind. I mean, he, sorry, he's not blind like all the way through. He's clearly a mixed baby, but you know, you know, they be coming out real light. Mm-hmm. And she was, and her mama was like, "Ain't no way that came from us." Mm-hmm. So Annette is very proud, just showing off for Dale Junior, aka Elijah, and. Either she or Fidel is wearing this Grambling State jacket, this same Grambling State jacket that they stole from Debbie's apartment on the same day, right? So it's about 10.45 p.m., and the police go to Annette's house, and there are five kids there alone. The oldest is about 13 years old. The cops are like, yeah, where are your parents? Two of the kids are Jacqueline's. Three of the kids are Jacqueline's friends' kids, who I guess are over the house visiting her kids or helping watch, whatever. So about an hour later at 11.45, Jacqueline and Fidel arrive at their house and 
they walk through the door to see the police and they're like, oh, what's going on here? The police are like, okay, we're pretty sure that's the baby that we've been fucking looking for. So thanks for that. Now, on top of that, they're already seeing evidence in the house. For example, James, Debbie's boyfriend, has already talked about shit that's been missing from the house. And this Gremlin State jacket is one of it. Two, we see here on your coffee table that you have a birth certificate for this baby, but it's giving forgery. It's giving it was typed up on a typewriter. It's also giving that you don't do not do you get the birth certificate as soon as you leave with the baby? Because I know you don't get the Social Security card as soon as you leave with the baby. I ain't never had no baby, so I wouldn't know. Um, I don't know what the process was like back then, but I believe you do. I think it's kind of changed in COVID too. Yeah, it probably has changed with COVID, but I was about to be like, this is the time they met in 94. So they've, this, this, when did this happen? I really think it's like, they have this certificate. They put the baby's feet and shit on it. And then the parents sign for the baby. There's Um, no feet print on my birth certificate from 94 and we're in 98. You don't have feet on yours? No. Do you have feet on yours? I, mm-hmm. I might be making shit up. We don't know the birth certificate we know, process. We don't know nothing about birth and no baby. Not a damn thing. I don't know nothing about birth and no baby. The sisters were found at Debbie's house. They look in the dishwasher and they see a knife in the dishwasher. They're like, yeah, we're going to go ahead and take this. And they're like, we're also going to go take this baby. And they take baby Elijah to the hospital and aside from the botched umbilical cord, baby Elijah, or Eli as he goes by, was unharmed and put into the care of his grandfather, who already had two-year-old Jordan, who was, by the way, left alone with his dead mama and sister at the house. And they say it's because, like, he's two, he can't talk. Um, so I guess he wasn't a threat to them. But but the crazy thing was, <laughs> the crazy thing was, the little boy could talk. <laughs> and when he comes, he, the thing is, he didn't talk to strangers. And so when Annette and Fidel are all over there, he's not talking to him. He's not really saying any words. But when Jordan gets with his granddaddy, he is telling him everything that he saw that night. Jacqueline Vern. Fidel, they're all arrested, and that's when the blame game starts. In this blame game, of course, everybody's story is different. Vern is saying that he left to go get a drink after they offered Debbie $2,000, and he heard a gunshot and saw them cutting a baby out of Debbie, but he said he had no clue that that was going to happen, and he just had to get out there and have a drink, and he wasn't a part of the shit after that, right? And wasn't really part of the shit to begin with. He was just trying to buy his son, right? Fidel says his side of the story is that around 5.36 p.m., Jacqueline called somebody, and it was like, hey, we about to have a baby, me and Fidel. And he says at about 7.15 on the night of the murder, November 16th, that he... And Jacqueline and her children come home from a basketball game and Jacqueline leaves shortly after. Now, he's like, I did call that same friend back. You know, he was like, but I didn't tell her that we were having a baby. 
that was that was all Jacqueline. He was like, in fact, the conversation that I had with Cassandra was she was trying to buy bug, drugs for me the day before, but she paid me with a check. And when I tried to cash that check, that check bounced. So I was really just calling, get my money back for the crack I sold her. <clears throat> so I didn't know they took tre- checks for drugs back in the day. Listen, I said, not this nigga took a, 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 a check and the shit bounced. <laughs> To the drug, like <laughs> so. <laughs> so the police check his car, and they do find a check in the glove box. Now, between six thirty and seven p.m., according to Fidel, a woman named Joyce goes to his house and buys cocaine for him. He says that she stayed there for about three minutes, and then from eight to nine p.m., he watched TV with Christina, who is one of Jacqueline's daughters. He says, then Christina goes to bed about 8 or 9, and he was still home. He says, at 1.30 a.m. on November 17th, he became worried about Jacqueline because she hadn't came home yet, so he goes to the 7-Eleven to use a payphone. <coughs> so cops are like, all right, let's check out this 7-Eleven it looks like you bought something for one ninety nine. Now they're looking at the CCV cameras, and I think maybe a receipt, and it says that he bought baby wipes. He's like, "No, nah, I ain't buy no baby wipes. I was just trying to call Jacqueline to see where she was at." He says, "Then I called Jacqueline's sister Tina and asked her if she could page Jacqueline. Then I called Vicky. Y'all remember Vicky, who was hanging out at the house." He was like, see, she seen her. Then I came back home, and he was like, that was about 2.30 a.m., and he sees Vicky in his driveway. He says he goes to Vicky's car, and Jacqueline is inside of Vicky's car holding the baby. So when Jacqueline says, I was over at a friend's house, had a baby, that friend is Vicky. She has something to do with something. This is all according to Fidel. This is his story he's telling the police. He says that they go inside, and... Vicky was like, yeah, Jacqueline was at my house and she just goes into labor. And then I drive Jacqueline to the hospital. She has the baby. And then we had to leave the hospital because, you know, that girl ain't got no insurance. We had to get the hell out of there. So Fidel is like, I'm a little skeptical of this story, but it's a baby. Like they got a baby, the, the, you know, the, the son I always wanted. So I'm, I'm just happy. I ain't know no shit like this done went down. He says that the three of them, take the baby to Vicky's house to go get Jacqueline's car. And at the house, Jacqueline calls Tina, as we told earlier, told her about the baby. And that's when Tina's like, I smell a little bullshit. Then he says that he and Jacqueline leave Vicky's house and drive to the same 7-Eleven where he placed a phone call earlier. And he says this is when he bought the baby wipes because she had came home with the baby. The store has them on record at like 4.49 a.m. at this point. And they made a purchase of $1.99, which was the price of the wipes. They go home at about 5 a.m. He says he lays next to his newborn son and they both fall asleep and wakes up the next day around noon. Does an errand with Jacqueline and a baby comes back home between 1.30 and 2 p.m. Jacqueline leaves again to pick up her kids from school. He stays home with the baby. Jacqueline returns between 4.35 p.m. And then around 8.50, Vicky pages him. And they all go to Vicky's house where Vicky gives him this Gremlin State jacket 
say it's his daddy's day present. So that's where he's like, y'all wonder where I got this jacket from. Vicky was holding it for me. It's it's my daddy's day present from Jacqueline. He's like, so I don't know shit about shit, right? So not daddy's day. Right. Like you supposed to be getting her a push present, not her giving you some shit. Oh my gosh, why did I just that's in my mind, I just completely forgot that we were in November. And I was like, Father's Day? And you call it Daddy's Day? More like Baby Daddy Day. Not like a push present. No. Stop. <laughs> like a push present. <laughs> so, Fidel is like, this is perfect because, you know, when Jacqueline showed up with the baby, I didn't even have a coat on. He was like, the car was heated. But, like, when we got home, I was wearing a jacket because it was cold out. And that's when Jacqueline was holding the baby. Now, Jacqueline's story, of course, is that Fidel wanted this baby. And Fidel said that they should go do this. And this was all Fidel's plan. And and Vern wanted to, it's it's just a whole lot of finger pointing, right? So the police are like, we need to get down to what's facts and what's not, right? Immediately following the murder, Fidel's cousins are telling the cops like, nah, nah, he wasn't there. He wasn't uh, with Jacqueline. Jacqueline planned that shit out and did that shit on her own. Now, Annette is insisting, no, 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 y'all have got the game fucked up this is my baby, right? I gave birth. And she says that her cousin Vern wanted to go to Debbie's apartment just to teach her a lesson. Nothing bad was supposed to happen, but, you know, she had been fucking with the relationship between him and his son, and we just had to let her know that that shit wasn't right. That's all we was there to do. Now, she later claims that she came to Debbie's apartment around 10 p.m., and when she was there, Fidel came out and handed her a baby. She's like, oh, like, I guess they was like, okay, girl, we know this is not your baby. And she was like, okay, Fidel gave me this baby. He came out of here. We were supposed to handle a problem. He did this. He did this. So she then goes on to say, like, you know, they're like, okay, what about Joshua? What about all this other shit? And she's like, listen, that was also Fidel. And as far as Patrice saying that I poisoned him, she poisoned him. I would never hurt him. So... It's it's a whole lot of back and forth. Vern, you know, he's he's saying he's not in it. They're looking into Vern's story. Vern don't call his ex and said, listen here, girl. I just did this shit to my baby mama, Debbie. And if you think I won't do some same fucked up shit to you, you got another thing coming. So you need to leave your man and get back to fucking with me because I don't play that shit. So let's just have a moment com- of silence to look at this nigga. What? So everybody's got things against them. And they're like, you're all going to jail. So on November 18th, Annette signs a statement admitting to her role in the murder. Now, they caught these people pretty quickly. The murder happened like the night of the 16th. Everybody's arrested by the 18th, right? So we ain't even got all the evidence back, but we've got enough shit to say y'all did it. So as the evidence is coming back, they find the poultry shears in Debbie's house and they have her blood on it and they have... Samantha's blood on it they find the knife in Jacqueline's dishwasher it's got Joshua's blood on it um they find the grambling jacket they they run the blood on there it's got Joshua and Jordan's blood on it they look at that birth certificate it's typed up on none other than Vicky's typewriter running how she plays a role in it she had something to do with something Pull the blood from the back seat of Jacqueline's car. It's, of course, Joshua's blood. They, the sheet 
that they wrapped Joshua in, they just throw it out in front of a piano store. They pick that shit up. It's not far from his body. They pick it up. It's got Joshua's blood on it. And then they start talking to people. A neighbor of Jacqueline's said that just a week prior, she sees Jacqueline wearing an arm brace. Turns out to be the same brace on that ace bandage that nobody knew where it came from. That yeah, that's been- Cynthia. I was, sort of, I was reading Cynthia's thing right now for me next. <laughs> Cynthia said it. And it had... Debbie's blood on it so it's just a lot of tying everybody everywhere and on December 2nd Vicky and a girl named Dorothy take the police to a lake and say this is where the gun was stomped now not really sure what Dorothy played in it their records were sealed but it seems like Vicky Dorothy and some other woman had a hand in getting them the gun and then disposing the gun. And of course, we know Vicky either let them use her typewriter to get this birth certificate or made the birth certificate for them. And when they're talking about Vern, they're like, he says, you know, of course, he says that he left after that happened. So when they go and interview, like, and try and figure out where his last steps were, they're retracing his steps So after Vern left them for that evening, he goes to his girlfriend, Tiffany's house. And Tiffany's two kids are there, 15 and 16, and they're babysitting. They're talking to witnesses and stuff. First of all, there's um, Deborah's neighbor says that around 8.30, 9.30, she heard a gunshot. And people in the complex said that they saw four people standing on a sidewalk talking to each other. And they believed that three of them were African-American and one was a light-skinned Hispanic male. Vern walks in the house with the bag in his hand and he's got on like these bloody clothes. He goes to the bathroom. You hear some water running. He comes out. The bag is a bit fuller and his clothes are changed. And he walks back out the house. One of the little girls, Joy, says that the family dog had scared her and made her run outside to where she sees the gray four-door automobile, a.k.a. Jacqueline and Fidel's car with three people inside, two men in the front seat and a woman in the back seat, and says that the people were Fidel and Jacqueline, and they were honking the horn, calling for Vern to come outside, and he carries the bag, he goes outside, he leaves. Like we said, mountain of evidence, witnesses, sussy behavior, everybody's saying they had nothing to do with it, but everybody is being seen together, and it's just not going well. So the police take all this evidence and they make a case and they get prepared to take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial. The trial took place in January of 1998. Prosecutors called Elijah the youngest victim of a crime and they laid out all the evidence that they had, which was quite a lot of evidence. They also and they also had Patrice and Patrice could tell the jury exactly what Joshua said happened to him because he was there at the time of the crime before his ultimate demise. Mm-hmm. Now, the defense painted Jacqueline Annette as an unwilling participant and they were like, "Listen, remember this baby was deceased or had seemed to have been deceased?" after its extraction from the womb and the baby was unresponsive, if anything, Jacqueline Annette is a savior. There's, she's not an evil person. She just was caught up in this very twisted relationship. She was complete. She was a complete unwilling participant in any of this. And they also had a psycho, 
psych exam on her. And the exam came back to the saying that she had a personality disorder, that she had bipolar disorder, of course, that she had depression and all of these things that were happening to her that she had internally, the chemical imbalance made her psychologically vulnerable to predatory men. And her history proves that most of this, most of the story about her background, we got from people's testimony in, in the, at the trial. Patrice, when she got on the stand, she also testified that in the fall of 95, Jacqueline asked her if her and Dwight or if Dwight and her, if they knew how to get a gun. And they were like, no, you know, we don't really know anything about that. And we told you about this. We told you the story of John Petaway and all of the sneaky, sneaky around. He testified about that. Also, he said that the following day after the crime had taken place, he saw Jacqueline vacuuming out that car trying to get it clean. Cynthia, like we said, got on the stand, talked about how the how she knew the relationship between Jacqueline and Debbie to be because remember they were apparent they were actually supposed to be friends. And talked about how she personally saw Jacqueline with that ace bandage, like Jazzy told you. Now, one thing that we were trying to figure out was what was happening in that backseat when Joshua was still alive. And that was something that Patrice really couldn't tell. She didn't know who was the one that was holding him down, who was the one that was actually stabbing him, because she's in the front seat cradling her baby. And this horrible thing is happening behind her. And one of the big things that the defense was going after was the fact that she had been faking a pregnancy not just this time but she had faked pregnancies multiple times they had some of her friends come on the stand and they were like yeah um she said that she was pregnant once had a miscarriage she said that she was pregnant this time and we've we've heard the pregnancy story before the court was like oh yeah by the way her tubes are tied there was absolutely no way that she would have been pregnant i've heard of people getting pregnant with their tubes tied Mm -hmm. i think that's a thing Mm mm-hmm So it's not the wildest thing that you've ever heard. Remember, Jacqueline had been in jail this entire time while she was awaiting trial. And while her trial was going on, members of the DuPage County Sheriff's Office, they said that Jacqueline Annette is in jail cutting up, okay? She, I guess, whittled a comb to be like a shank, and they found that in her cell. She grabbed at a sheriff's deputy that was escorting her, like they were escorting her, and she like lunged and grabbed at his shoulder. And they were like, she's always she's being like questionable and violent. The prosecutor, Jeff Kendall, gave a very poignant closing statement. He said, quote, These horrific crimes are an Annette Williams production. He said, Annette Williams picked the day Elijah would be born. She picked the day. Deborah Evans would die. She picked the day Samantha, her daughter, would die. The jury went back and they deliberated for two hours. <laughs> Pretty up and shut case. We got a lot of evidence, so we don't really need much time here in the deliberation room. Girl, you're guilty, okay? You're guilty of first-degree murder of Deborah, Samantha, and Joshua Evans. Um, You're guilty of aggravated kidnapping of Joshua and Elijah. And just so you know, we found you eligible for the death penalty. So have fun at sentencing, okay? Debbie's brother, 
Sam Jr. at the after the trial gave very sad words, of course, when he's doing his victim impacting statement. And one of the last things he said was, quote, I do want to wish Joshua a happy birthday. He would have been 10 tomorrow. At sentencing, she received two 15-year sentences for the kidnapping of Joshua Evans and Elijah Evans. And for the murder charges, she was sentenced to death. Now, Fidel, of course, also went to trial. And while on trial, they talked a lot about his upbringing. We've told you about his grandma, his grandmother and his mother both having psychological disorders. We talked about his grandfather passing and how that was very serious. And they had a fourth grade teacher come and testify on his behalf about how he was a good student. So they had a couple of doctors testify as to what exactly happened to the victims. They said that in Debbie's C-section, one, that in order to perform the C-section that they did, you would need at least three people to perform this. Two, if you don't care about the mother's well-being, but if you're, like, trying to keep her alive, at least three people. They said that the uterus was either removed from the mother's body or turned while it was inside of her because the cut that they used to cut open the uterus was on the back side of the uterus. Um, They talked about how the bullet went from the back of her head to the front of her skull. They also they also had an OBGYN come in and she was saying that a fetus will not will only survive about three to five minutes while the mother's heart is not beating. So I don't know if Debbie was conscious, but she was definitely alive when that baby came out. Yeah. And the family talked about how, like, at first that was their ease, like, okay, in you hear that a lot. Like when this horrible thing was happening to happening to her, we at least know that she was not alive for it. Like even people that haven't, they get in terrible car crashes and they're like, they died on impact. They're like, okay, at least this horrible, they didn't continue to feel everything, but she was clearly unconscious, but her heart was beating. Mm-hmm. And it's like, did and it's, it's disheartening to hear. Like you felt somebody do this to you. Right. And they, they also said that the bud spatter from the cuts also showed that her heart was still beating at the time. They talked about how Joshua suffered from strangulation, stab wounds, and aspiration. And aspiration is like when he throws up and he, like, inhales some of his throw up. Yeah, they said that they didn't examine the contents in his stomach, but there was unusual damage to the tissue of his lungs from the aspirated stomach contents. And it was consistent with ingestion of iodine. So they were sure that he was trying to be poisoned. Um, They said that the ligature marks around his neck were consistent with the white cord that they found in the garage, uh, in Jacqueline's garage. They confirmed again the butcher knife that was used to stab him was the one in Jacqueline's dishwasher. And they also testified that he would not have died instantaneously from any of these injuries, but he wouldn't have lived for more than 30 minutes either. They ruled him as dying from multiple injuries from the strangulation, the stab wounds, and the aspiration. They said all that combined led to his death. But I feel like he probably could have been saved. He really could have. I think that's the reality of it. 30 minutes. 
But that's the reality of it, that he really could have been saved. Mm-hmm. They also had doctors testifying to the mental health of Jacqueline. They said they did a full-scale IQ test on Jacqueline, and she had a score of 81, which is below average and borderline mentally retarded. He also diagnosed her with major depression and said that she suffered from this depression before the murders happened. And she also got diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, borderline personality disorder with dependent features. They say characteristics of this borderline personality of this borderline personality disorder include volatile relationships, impulsivity, rapid, rapid mood swings, poorly controlled anger, fear of abandonment and rejection. And, you know, if you remember to our first womb raider case, they say like this is rarely about the mother's or the, the person's desire to be a mother, mm-hmm. but more so a narcissistic tendency to try and maintain something else in her life. And we, you know, she's trying to maintain Fidel. She said he would be happy if he had a light-skinned son, so she went and got him a light-skinned son. After denying Fidel's post-trial motion, the trial court had a, had a sentencing hearing for him. Great. So Fidel also was sentenced to death. Annette, J- Jacqueline Annette, like we told you, also sentenced to death. Laverne received one life sentence plus 60 years. And then we got started with appeals. Jacqueline files an appeal um, stating three main reasons. One, she didn't feel that Patrice should have been able to speak to what Joshua told her. She's like, that's hearsay. And you can't put hearsay in my trial. Now, there is an exception to the hearsay rule that if a person under the age of 13 share something with you and they speak about a crime that happened to them, then it can't be allowed. And Jacqueline's like, he's speaking to the murder. I didn't murder him, so it shouldn't be admissible. But the prosecution was like, listen, you murdering his mom led to you kidnapping him because you didn't want him to say anything so that was a crime that happened to him and they're like eh technicality was he kidnapped his mom is dead kidnapped means I took him from a guardian it's James who reported him missing and all of this stuff so I didn't James is not his stepdaddy or guardian or anything Jane has no legal ties to his son so he was not necessarily kidnapped and it was like Yeah, you're reaching. That's not going to go through. She says, okay. She also says, like, you're holding me like I planned this and I'm trying to tell y'all, you know, I just got wrapped up in a thing and I don't feel like I should have got this heavy sentence as if I'm the one who planned it or chose to participate. Remember, I'm the one who saved this baby's life. I kept him alive. I tried to protect Joshua. Joshua ran to me and told me he was scared. You know what I mean? And they're like, listen, lady, that's not going to fly either. Because after the murder happened, did you call the cops? Did you save anybody's life? Did you return the baby or did you steal it? It's not going to fly. You wanted this to happen just as much as everybody else in here wanted this to happen. So we're not taking that either. She tries her last little Hail Mary. Her last appeal is... They should have gave limiting instruction, like, don't take everything Patrice says at full value. Um, They're like, 
she didn't tell the truth about certain things when she first mentioned a thing. When she first mentioned certain things to the police, she didn't name Fidel at first. She didn't name other people who she saw. And they was like, well, she was terrified of them. And Annette's like, so can I not be terrified of them too? And they're like, no, no, you can't. The way you participated, the evidence that's against you, it's not showing that you were afraid. So they dismissed all of this and they upheld her conviction. Now, Fidel also comes in with his appeal and he's like, listen, as we see, most of the evidence points to Jacqueline. Y'all are sitting here saying that I'm with her. Y'all didn't take into account these people saying that I was here doing this. My cousins testified. He puts in his appeals. He also gets denied. In fact, a old friend of Samantha comes as a character witness. You know, you, you spend some time in jail before, like, the appeals really go through. And so right. she's now, Samantha was 10 when she died. Her friend is now an adult with a child. She she says she had to testify. She was like, Samantha was her best friend growing up. And she said once she heard Fidel was trying to get out, she just had to come and put a stop to it. She said it wasn't fair that she lost her friend at such a young age and she wasn't going to allow this man to get out of prison. Look, I mean, Samantha was, what, 10 at the time? Yeah. She was and like, so this was is my her best friend that's best like, friend. this is this little girl's probably what, what year did this happen? I can't, I mean, like you're an adult, she's clearly an adult and you are going to remember when your 10 year old best friend was viciously taken away from you. And I wouldn't want him out of jail either. So they also talked to Elijah and Jordan around this time of the appeals. And I was like, how do you feel about everything that's going on? First, the granddad is like, you know, it was hard. I took custody of these two boys. And they've lost their sister. They've lost their mom. They've lost their brother. It's just a whole lot of loss and hurt for these young kids. Jordan witnessed this shit, you know? I When I finally get the two babies at home, Jordan's standing over Elijah's crib, rubbing his back, telling him he's going to be okay. She's two, having to go through all that. Now, at the time of these appeals, Elijah, who was is now 16 years old, and he's like... He doesn't remember what happened. Jordan has, like, faint memories, but he doesn't really remember what happens. But it's kind of like things are weird for them, right? Like, when people talk about This is a big thing that shaped your entire life. You know what I mean? Like, just all these different things. But, you know, he kind of didn't really have any feelings towards these people. It's just kind of like, I mean, no, I, I... I think you should probably stay in there, right? Now, one of the things that I thought was interesting is Debbie's family was speaking to the press and they was like, you know, we're very happy that they got a life. The only concern is that the governor had just commuted somebody's sentence from death row to prison. And, you know, they was like, we want her to die. And they're like, I really hope that doesn't happen to us. So, you know, they're trying to keep the appeals down. They're showing up to court, trying to make sure everybody stays in jail. And the appeals were denied. But in 2003, the same governor commuted not only Jacqueline and Fidel's sentences, death sentences, but all the death row inmates in the state of Illinois. They all got commuted to life without parole. Right. So fear kind of came true, but... That was like his last act in office. He was like, I'm out of here. 
And so now they are both sitting there for the rest of their lives because they still do have life. They have life plus the 15 plus the 15 mm-hmm. that are being served one after the other. Then Jacqueline decides to take matters into her own hands and she writes a letter about why she feels that she should be released from prison. Not because she is feeling like she is innocent, but because she says that she is, quote, a very good person and feels that she deserves to be back in society. And she wrote to a judge requesting executive clemency, like, set me free. She said, I've done enough time. And she said she was ready to get back to her life. She wants to hug her children and she wants to see daylight when she wants to see it. She wants a second chance that this governor has given her. She said, quote, I lived every day in regret. And if I could redo this, I would. I understand my guilt and I'm truly remorseful, but I feel like I've served enough time. I just want to be productive and be a blessing to kids and other women who are in a predicament like myself. I am guilty, but not of all of this. And I do believe that I deserve a second chance. She says she misses a small thing like smelling the flowers receiving a hug from a family member that was of course denied and that's kind of where her story ends don't really know what happened to her kids Jordan and Elijah went on to live happy healthy lives they got into sports and I think they're close in age so they got to like play sports together and go to high school together right all right y'all it's time for well I'm not black I'm OJ I didn't do it, but if I did, this is how I would have gotten away with it. I have a lot. What you got? Because I've got plenty. I am writing these down. Let me spin this real quick. I ain't do it, but if I did, I would have just maybe picked a time if If I did, maybe pick a time where there are not so many kids in the house so they don't have to kill all the kids in order to get a baby. Like, how you killing kids to get a baby? Make it make sense. Kids, Um, not even just one. Not accidental, on purpose. Killing kids for one baby. Which goes to another um, one that I have. I ain't do it, but if I did, just everybody in general, if somebody comes over to your house and... They are asking about your significant other's work schedule. I just feel like that's automatically a red flag because why you want to know when I'm here alone? He here. They here. She Even if here. I ain't put it to why he here alone, why you want to know what he doing? Why you want to know what my, why what you what in I'm his doing? business? Why are you in my person's business? They be here. Okay. They be here. And I just feel like that's a red flag. Why you need to know where they, why you need to know where he at? Um, I ain't doing it, but if I did, why you dropped Joshua off at Patrice? Why did you get Patrice involved at all? I think if you were going to get somebody else involved, you should have stuck with Vicky because it seems like she had at least a sentiment of what you guys were doing. So if I had to drop right. Joshua off anywhere, it would have probably been Vicky's house, not Patrice who don't know shit. Right, because you just drug Patrice into this and she was literally an unwilling participant. So of course she's going to tell the police what mm-hmm. happened. Um, I ain't do it, but if I did... Jacqueline, girl, so the whole time that this man was living with you, he was out cheating around with everybody else and then came home to beat on you. Why? Why are you fighting for this man? What is it? It, it, Right. Like, you can just be one of the hoes, which brings me to another. I know I'm doing two at a time, which brings me to another. At the beginning of a relationship with somebody that you want to have a long-term relationship with, you need to have the conversations about the things that you want, the things that you don't want, the things that you can have, the things that you can't have. Because one of the things that he made it very clear was that he wanted a son. 
he's got all these girls. He wanted a son. You know that you cannot give him a son. Right? Because you got your tubes tied, right? Okay, so that's the conversation that y'all need to have. And I guess y'all did have the conversation. This was the plan that y'all came up with. However, learn when it's time for you to walk away, okay? Because if you didn't want to be... I'm sorry, hold on. Because if you don't want to be a step-parent to some kid that don't look like you, if you don't want to be with somebody that can't give you the child that you want, then let him go find somebody else. This man wasn't even that cute. I ain't do it, but if I did, we really... We really walking around in our trophies the day of and the day after. You walking in Girl. in a stolen jacket from the apartment that you just did this massacre. It's a massacre. And we going to walk around in a jacket, and the jacket got bloodstains on it? And I don't know if we said this. Laverne was trying to tell the police that he wasn't around there, and he was like, I wasn't even there, you know. But somebody that day was like, oh, yeah, Laverne sold me the CD player that he stole from Debbie's house. <sighs> Make it make sense. Come on. Like, y'all need to, if if the thing was to get the baby, get the baby. Don't add on the shit. They said, while we're here, let's just do whatever the fuck we want. And can't you untie your tubes? Yeah, but remember, that girl had to leave the hospital after she had her quote-unquote baby because she didn't have no insurance. So I guess she couldn't afford to get her tubes untied. Snip, snap, snip, snap. You know that from the office when Michael Scott keeps getting a vasectomy and then reversing it, then a vasectomy <laughs> again, then reversing it? It's the dinner party. It's the one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> okay, this has been my problem with all of these fake baby epi- episodes. Babies don't bake like that. How you going to shift your due date by three months? That's oh, not how babies bake. It's always an inconsistent due date. Pickle is going to be at the beginning. Figure out which mama you're going to tag to at the beginning and keep that same due date. Like, come on now. Because not I know a lot of people that's pregnant. Come on. Make it make sense. Also, I have a question for the probation officer, for Jacqueline's probation officer. I feel like all this could have been nipped in the bud because when Jacqueline told her probation officer, A, that she was pregnant, B, that she had the baby on November 1st, remember this crime happened on November 16th, and the fact that she was on probation, was she not getting drug tested? Was was the state not drug testing her? And if they were, they should they would be able to clearly see if she is pregnant or not. So why was this lie? She, I mean, she was also telling her probation officer this lie. Why was she well, not tested to see if she was actually, if you get a drug test there, it will tell you if you're pregnant right there. I mean, it's so easy to take a pregnancy test and they do it at the testing centers often. They'll just be well, like, they would have to run hey, a pregnancy test. So like, yeah, you not? can tell it from the, why year, not? Because that's not the probation officer business. It ain't illegal for her to be pregnant. But also, it depends on the crimes that you were done. And it seems like she was on theft charges. And but you see all the time where they're like, oh, yeah, we see this, this, and this. Oh, yeah, and by the way, you're pregnant. But that's at a doctor where they're, like, running a full scan. If you're running, if you're doing, like, a piss test, you're going to stick that thing in there. And if it turned a certain color, you have failed. And that's all that they're looking for is drugs. So that test is not set up to read if you are pregnant or not. But two, just because you are on probation does not mean that you have to take a drug test. It depends on the conditions of your parole. So typically when you have drug-related charges, you will be on that or something. But it's not always required that you take a drug test. Sometimes it is just so that you can pay the fees. And spend your time and money. 
Oh, this is just one for uh, Fidel that I just caught on really early. He A lot of his early charges was... <laughs> the problem started, like, the loaded guns in the car was because he was speeding. And I just want people to know that they need to not be speeding while you're doing illegal things in your car. Just... <laughs> I, I okay. understand the struggle with speeding, trust me. But um, one crime at a time. You know, a simple speeding ticket can just be a simple speeding ticket, and that's annoying enough. But you're adding on gun charges and shit? Like, no, we don't need those problems. Right, and I saw that a couple times that they voluntarily let the uh, cops search their car unless they smell something. Baby, they don't have... But uh, you gotta you put gotta it in context and think of like the '90s and everything that's happened. It it it'll say consensual, but is it consensual because you feel like you don't have a choice, or is it consensual like we can search this car or we can find a reason to arrest you? You know what I mean? I ain't do it, but if I did, we really we're really picking out light skinned babies and killing a baby to get a light skinned baby. No, like colorism? Now we're killing over colorism. Like, come yeah. on. That's what we're doing. Come on. He just That's had why... to have a light-skinned baby because none of your kids could resemble him because it's not possible for a light-skinned man to have a dark-skinned baby. That's why That's Jacqueline Annette's mother was like, take me home. Right. Because she, she, she playing. And the kid's not blonde now, but right. I'm sure when he was born, he was pretty blonde. Yeah. She was I like, was. take me home. Surely that's not what we're doing, though, right? Like, Surely that's not what we're doing. Like, that's what we're obsessing over. And girl, again, if he says those things that he wants, baby, you're not giving him no light-skinned baby. I'm more pressed about the baby being a boy than what color the baby come out. <laughs> like, let's talk about things that matter. Like, I can understand you wanting a boy. And then she was like, oh, a two-for-one special. What? Come on. <laughs> parole or no parole? No parole for Mara, clearly. I'm I just think maybe she that. needs to be... I think she needs to be in... There's <laughs> clearly a chemical imbalance there. And that needs to be properly addressed in the way that it is not proper... Probably not properly being addressed in her prison cell. Definitely don't let her out. She, Go ahead and second that. She can stay put. I ain't pressed. Her letter was cute. I'm glad she feels like she's being redeemed. Maybe you can get to a lower security prison. Or they Maybe might not. let you sit in the room with your family and actually hug them. That's about as best as I got for you. You killed okay. multiple kids. Right, yeah. I don't think so. You're being generous. <laughs> She's still in jail. I'm just saying. Maybe she can nah, sit can. with her family. But that's about it. That's just all I got for you. You're going to have to stay behind them bars. You better get some yard time and plant some flowers so that you can smell them. But that's all I got for Dead. you, sis. <laughs> all right. Well, that's the end of the show. And I think that it's a good time to read some reviews. I have my review. Go ahead. All right, this one landed in the email inbox. It says, Hey, I just wanted to send you guys a review from a huge fan here in Iceland. I started listening to you guys latest last year, and I have been hooked since and was so lucky you had so many episodes out already. But damn, I caught up quick. 
anyways, I just wanted to praise you guys real quick because you are one of the two true crime podcasts that I actually listen to and the only podcast that is so educating and entertaining at the same time. I have never learned so much about American history and seen all the ways in which the U.S. fails to protect black women. I love you guys and you are one of the podcasts I remember. I recommend to everyone around me. You guys are doing really important things here. I'm sending nothing but good energy towards you guys in the new year and look forward to seeing you grow. Likely, you're one Icelandic listener. Heba. Thank you. Thank you so much. Don't be the only one. Tell a friend to tell a friend. Um, All right. This one is from Apple Podcasts. From who took my initials? Said the title of it says, Don't Tell My Boss. Five stars. I love this podcast. I work retail and I just pop in an AirPod as I go about my day. It really helps the time pass. Customers be coming up to me and I don't know and don't know I'm listening to graphic crimes at the time I'm helping them. <laughs> I'm almost caught up, unfortunately, but I can't stop binging the episodes. Thank you. Somebody told me that yesterday because most of my like people don't listen to this podcast. I got a couple cousins that listen to the podcast in Chicago. Shout out to y'all. Um, but like my cousins and family down here, they don't really listen to it. And don't nobody know what I do. And <laughs> one of my friends finally like was like, I put your your podcast. It told me yesterday, I put your podcast. I was like three episodes back to back while I was working. I was like, it's a binge worthy. They were like, yeah. You know, your family knows. Hey, y'all. <laughs> Yo, yo, family, them niggas be deep. I was like, God, y'all really like this, huh? They be like, yeah, so elaborate on this one a little more. Um, All right. That's the end of the show, for real. Um, If you want to keep up with us, you can. You can follow us on Twitter, Sisters Who Kill. Follow us on Instagram, Sisters Who Kill Pod. On TikTok, Sisters Who Kill Podcast. On Facebook, you can follow the Facebook page, Sisters Who Kill podcast. And then you can also join the private discussion group. There are some questions to answer for you to get in, but the public Facebook page you can also like. Um, anything else, friend? Talk to us. We talk back. Bye. Bye.